This week's TribCast is sponsored by the Central Texas Regional Mobility Authority. The Central Texas Regional Mobility Authority implements innovative and sustainable transportation solutions to enhance quality of life and economic vitality in Central Texas. Learn more at mobilityauthority.com. And Circle. Circle is the app that brings state leadership and influencer data to the same secure platform. Download it today at mycirql.com. Hello and welcome to the January 6th edition of the Texas Tribune Tribcast. This is Emma Platoff filling in as your host. I'm joined this week by Washington Bureau Chief Abby Livingston. Hi. Executive Editor Ross Ramsey. Howdy. And State Politics Reporter Cassie Pollack. Hello. I understand we also have a junior political correspondent, uh, Huey Pollack, joining us today um, for any of our canine members of the audience. So... Thanks for that, Huey. Speaking on behalf of him, you know, he's happy to be here. <laughs> Put your barks in the chat session and we'll answer them later. Um, all right, Abby, we're going to go to you first because the big news today is out of Washington. Um, Congress is meeting as we speak to formally count the votes of the Electoral College, where Joe Biden, of course, has won a decisive victory. Normally, this would be a very boring half hour. Uh, what is it going to look like today? Well, and, and that is correct. Boring. I believe in early 2013 it was. I had an editor at my previous publication sort of force me to go just to see what it looked like. And I basically remember a very empty chamber with a few members just kind of sitting in and observing out of, I guess, curiosity and that kind of thing. And I'm, I've got CNN on, and on mute. And uh, I mean, it, you've got the whole uh, joint session amid a pandemic, Speaker Pelosi, uh, banging the gavel. So this this has the feel of something like a state of the union. Um, and it, it is unlike anything I've ever seen before, which is a common rephrase, phrase I've used in the last four years. So who are the big Texas players in all this? We know that there was a, a rally, I believe the Stop the Steal rally um, in Washington this morning. I know Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton was in attendance. Who are the people from Texas we should keep our eye on today? Well, the key player, um, per usual, is uh, Ted Cruz. Um, he spearheaded this effort to uh, object to the sort of or the counting of the votes, and um, it, it almost feels like uh, 2015 all over again. Uh, John Cornyn is adamantly against this, and so the two senators are split. During the Trump era, they'd sort of been working uh, as a unit more than they had in the past, and now we're seeing them diverge, which is sort of a metaphor for the larger Senate conference where you've got um, the leadership, Cornyn faction, um, folks like who, uh, I think one of the dividing lines that has not been noted within the Senate is you've got a lot of senators who served with Joe Biden um, and who tend to adhere to um, historical norms. And then you've got Ted Cruz and the younger bunch. Um, and uh, a number of commentary, uh, common people commenting have said, don't use the word conservative because uh this sort of procedural disruption is not necessarily indicative of ideology. And we see that. Um, and we've seen some senators who you might think would go along with Ted Cruz have not, Senator Tom Cotton, Senator Mike Lee of Utah. So it's it's a very interesting split. But the 
outcome will be the same. It might be a very long process, but it will be Joe Biden as the president of the United States at noon, January 20th. So you said, you know, this isn't necessarily about ideology. Ross, you had a column this week uh, giving at least one explanation for what this might be about. And, and you mentioned some upcoming elections. Yeah, you know, the if you look at any of the polling that we've done or that others have done, one of the things that really sticks out is how much Republican voters support President Trump. And it helps explain why, you know, Republican politicians who you might not expect to be on Trump's side of things um, are so reluctant to oppose the president. Their voters are with the president, so they're with the president. And, you know, it follows that if you're going to run for, or you're thinking about running for office in 2024, as Ted Cruz is, you know, thought to be, um, that you want to be close to those voters and that that might be a pretty good reason to be backing the president now, even if it's over in two weeks or even if it's over in four years, you want to be in position with those voters. So he's got a, a motive that has nothing to do really with the outcome of the 2020 election and everything to do with the loyalties of those voters in a post-Trump world whenever that happens. Yeah, I believe, Ross, you also had a, a colorful dog-related metaphor in that column. I don't know if you care to share that with us today. I think that's why Huey Pollock showed up for this. For the, <laughs> you know, there was a, there was a uh, sort of uh, big moment during the 2016 Republican National Convention when Ted Cruz was um, losing to Donald Trump and super angry at Trump's disparagement of Heidi Cruz, his wife, and of his father. Um, and, you know, Cruz called him all sorts of names and said, I'm not going to be a servile puppy dog and go back to, you know, Donald Trump and lick his boots, et cetera, et cetera. And um, here he is being a servile puppy dog to Donald Trump and licking his boots. And, that, you know, that's um, I think I closed that with woof, woof. <laughs> Abby, what's your what's your read on that? Do you think that the um, sort of electoral motivations are are similar for members of the Texas uh, congressional delegation uh, in the in the U.S. House on the other side of the Capitol? Uh, you know, we will see uh, later today, but it looks like we are on track for um, at least a majority of the House Republicans from Texas to go along with this, um, and this is probably what their constituents want. Um, uh, a number of them have said that they're doing this because they want to make sure future elections are fair. We must reiterate, we have not seen evidence of widespread voter fraud. Um, and so this is, I, I think what is absolutely fascinating, um, and I'll veer a little bit out of Texas for a second. Um, right after Thanksgiving 2012, Shelley Moore Capito, a House member, announced for the Senate in West Virginia. And some of the Republican um, Tea Party groups immediately came out and endorsed against her, even though there was no candidate and there would be eventually be no candidate who really challenged her for the Republican nomination. And I was thinking at the time, I think a civil war is coming. But if you told me nine years later or eight years later what it would look like, I just never could have imagined that. But that is what is happening in the Senate caucus right now. Um, I, I kind of think the fight's already over in the House. Um, the, uh, the rest of anti-establishment crew has won. Um, but in the Senate, it is now just beginning. And the finger pointing about the Georgia election has already started. Establishment-minded Republicans said, uh, told Jake Tapper, and he tweeted um, this morning that they saw um, polling looking good in Georgia until this whole Josh Hawley, Ted Cruz um, thing started. And 
nobody's talking about the pandemic and making Americans' lives better. They're not talking about the economy. They are talking about a voter fraud that there is no evidence for and that they're pointing the finger at uh, Josh Hawley, specifically in Jake Tapper's tweet. So um, we are we are about to see a real fight in the Republican caucus or conference on the Senate side. Um, but I think the fight is already over on the House side. Yeah, we're talking about electoral implications for Texas Republicans of what it means to embrace Trump um, in this kind of last grasp for power. We got sort of a preview about that, right, last night with um, two U.S. Senate races in Georgia where some people have already called those races. But in any case, it's looking pretty good for the two Democratic candidates. Um, Ross, is there a cautionary tale in Georgia last night for Texas Republicans who are uh, clinging to the Trump mantle today? You know, there would be if Trump was still in office in November of 2022, but that's going to be a midterm election in the Biden administration. And it's something of a safety net for Republicans. I mean, you know, presumably if we sort of follow the normal course of things, you know, uh, you know, uh, midterm elections are hard on presidential administrations. And so that should be all other things aside, a pretty good year for Republicans. I think in the Republican primaries coming up, there's going to be the civil war that Abby's talking about. And I think, you know, we had a moment before, I guess, after 2018 and before 2020, where in Texas, we thought, you know, maybe the big fights in an election year would not be in the primaries, but would be in the general election. And I think, you know, the conversation that the Republicans are having right now moves the big fights in the 2022 um, election cycle in Texas back to the primaries. Um, you know, it might be that the Democrats mount something in November, but I think the first test is going to be what do the uh, Republicans who split right now, how do they act, how do they position themselves, and how do they go into the March 2022 primaries, which is, you know, I hate to say this right after an election that we've all spent too much time on and too much oxygen on, but, you know, we're 12 months from the next primary. <laughs> All right, Abby, you already made this point, but I'm going to reiterate because it's an important one. Um, there is going to be a big dog and pony show at the U.S. Capitol today. It is not going to change the outcome of the Electoral College. Uh, we know that Joe Biden won in November. Abby, what does the finish line look like on this? I mean, officially, the finish line is 1201 January 20th. I don't think any... Um, person who's observed American politics for even just as a hobby thinks that this ends when this vote happens. I mean, there was sort of an assumption um, when the Electoral College voted in December that it would be over or when the Supreme Court ruled it would be over. I don't think this will be over until Trump leaves the White House. Um, and even then, I think this is going. This fight is going to continue, and this debate. And I, I see a deeply dysfunctional look ahead in American politics, and I don't know when that ends. Uh, from that cheerful note <laughs> to another one, uh, some other news out of the Texas congressional delegation this week: we had two members testing positive for the coronavirus. What's the update on that, Abby? Well, uh, Kay Granger, my hometown rep, uh, tested positive, and then Kevin Brady um, tested positive or announced he tested positive yesterday. Um, they're probably the two most powerful Republicans in the House from Texas. They're both ranking members of committees and very, very powerful committees. Um, and I, you know, I, I think we still have to. Um, these these folks are in 
close proximity. They ride on the same planes. I am looking at the television right now and they are all in the house chamber together. They're wearing masks, but um, you know, this is from March. I have been very worried about members catching this. Um, and I've personally avoided the Capitol because I've been scared I would be asymptomatic and accidentally infect a member. Um, and so uh, the good thing is our medicine is advanced and these people have access to health care that a lot of Americans do not. And they are in the process of getting vaccinated. Um, but we I think it's just one more layer of instability of, you know, I, I don't know if they're going to be on the floor today. Um, there was a member who tested positive on the Democratic side from Wisconsin who went on the floor and Republicans were very angry during the speaker's vote. And so it's just um, it's just an amazing spectacle. And, and, and I am talking to you all from Fort Worth, Texas. Um, the reason I am not in Washington is, one, I'm a little worried about my personal safety, given what we're seeing on television. And two, there's no point because I'm not at the Capitol um, and I can't really be at the Capitol. And so it's just this very strange moment in American politics. And it just continues to get weirder and weirder and weirder. Among the weird things uh, being that, you know, two Texas members of the U.S. House of Representatives are uh, positive for a, a potentially deadly virus. And that wasn't even, you know, the, the lead headline for our show today. Absolutely. Uh, and they're, both, they're both vaccinated, which I think is kind of an interesting, you know, piece of information about this. I think Brady said he had had the first shot. Uh, Abby, you may know, I don't know if Granger had had both shots or one shot, but they were both in the vaccination process. Um, at some point anyway. And, it, you know, it's just, a, I mean, you know, you know this if you think about it and you know about vaccines, you know, they're not preventatives. They make it less likely that you'll get a disease, but not, uh, not you know, they don't rule it out completely. And, you know, we get two case studies here. Right. And experts are saying that, you know, that's why it's important to get the second dose, that you, you can't expect the full protection from just the first dose. I believe that um, each of these members had had the first dose, but not the second dose. Um, but Ross, you brought us into a great next topic, which is the status of the vaccine rollout in Texas. Uh, we know that some members of Congress have been vaccinated. Who else has been? You know, the the one A's are the people that, you know, the CDC and then the state of Texas, you know, kind of ratified. Those are the people that were the front line um, troops here. You know, these yeah. are people working in hospitals, people working on um you know, on the front lines. And there are approximately 1.9 million of those in Texas, according to the latest numbers I've seen. And we had 1.4 million first doses available in mid-December. So you can see that we're short of having the numbers for 1A. But we got some reporting from the state that said that not all of the vaccines were being used and that they weren't being used fast quickly enough. So state health officials opened up the vaccinations to people who are 1Bs. These are people who are over 65 or who are under 65 and have comorbidities like, you know, they have heart trouble or they have diabetes or they have something else that makes them particularly susceptible to the disease. And they said, we're going to go ahead and add in the 1Bs. So in Texas, if you're a 1A or a 1B and a shot's available, you're eligible to take it. Um, that made the pool about 10 million people. It's a huge pool, and there's still, you know, uh, fewer than 2 million doses available. So you can see we've got a shortage. And the question is how this is going to sort out, you know, over the next week or month. And also, how did we get in this position? Because we were talking about vaccines all the way back to the spring. And even though we didn't have the vaccines ready yet, 
it seems certainly from this perspective and probably from that perspective that putting the mechanism for distributing the vaccines should have been in place. And it clearly wasn't. So, you know, we've got a distribution problem. Um, there's a lot of response to this. A lot of this is in flux. Um, I know Houston's proposing a mass vaccination center that would be open 24 hours. You know, you pull up in your car, they give you a shot, bada bing, bada boom, bada bing, bada boom. We know from voting and all of the other kinds of things like that, that we have the capability to process millions of people through a secure system relatively quickly. You know, we can collect 11 million votes in four weeks. We can get, you know, if you had the shots available, presumably you could do the same thing. But at the moment, we're sorting it out. It's a it's mass confusion because people don't know, A, whether they're actually eligible, B, if they are eligible, where to get the shots doctor's offices and drug stores and all of those places are flooded with phone calls that, you know, uh, your doctor's office is good at a lot of things, but probably phone banking is not one of them. Um, you know, it's a big confusing mess right now. And, um, you know, it, it could sort out relatively quickly. We could be mired in this for a little while. It's so striking because I think back to the conversation so similar to this one we were having in the spring about testing capabilities and, um, you know, are there enough tests? Where are the tests? Who's eligible to get a test? Uh, how are the cities handling the tests? How are the state handling the tests? And it's just giving me this insane sense of deja vu. But the obvious difference in my mind is that uh, no one was really prepared for a pandemic, right? But we have been prepared for a vaccine. I mean, when is the last time you went an hour without talking to a family member or a friend or a colleague about, gosh, I can't wait um, to get vaccinated so that we can all be, you know, in the newsroom together uh, or, you know, in the gallery at the Texas Capitol together, for example. So I don't know. What do you make of that, Ross? Are you are you ready to condemn our political leaders for for not having this right? Or do you think we need to give them a little more time? You know, a little bit of both. I mean, they should have been prepared. We have mechanisms for distribution to large numbers of people. We've got, you know, the voting system. We've got, you know, we've got all of these things. We've, you know, managed to vaccinate, you know, most of the five and a half million kids who go to school every year. I mean, we have the mechanism in place for this. Uh, if you don't want to look at voting or something like that, you could look at, I don't know, the testing that we started in the spring and finally have sort of you know, gotten to a point where we're more or less happy with it. You know, why can't you put uh, syringes at the end of those lines where we've had the 11-foot Q-tips to stick up of our noses, you know? Um, it looks like the mechanism for this could have and should have been in place. And, and you know, I think there's room, there's a lot of room for criticism there. But I'm also, you know, at this point, I may eat this in a week, but in, I'm optimistic that they can get this straightened out. Um, it looks like the biggest problem here is wide avail availability of vaccines. And once the the doses become more widely available than this crunch of um, we don't have them, we heard they have them across the street. That kind of that kind of um, supply demand problem will ease up. But I don't know how fast they're going to produce the vaccines and get them out to the people who can give shots and um, get rid of these lines that are forming up. All right. Well, we and all our listeners will remember to check in with Ross next week as to whether he needs to eat those words. Um, for now, we're going to take a quick break to thank some of our sponsors. Lone Star College. Lone Star College leads the way in helping Texas get back to work by training tomorrow's workforce today. Learn more at LoneStar.edu. 
And Raise Your Hand Texas. Listen to the new Raise Your Hand Texas podcast, Intersect Ed, where the stories of education policy and practice meet. Visit raiseyourhandtexas.org slash podcast. All right, vaccine, COVID protocols, and more. We're now less than a week out from a new session of the Texas legislature. We're getting closer, we hope, to learning what that will look like. Cassie, can you lay out the sort of top line health protocols in each chamber of the, of the Capitol? Yeah. So uh, about a week ago, we didn't have the best look at what opening day at the Capitol was going to look like. Um, I am happy to report that now we have a pretty good idea of what both the House and Senate are going to have in place come Tuesday. Um, Charlie Guerin, how, uh, chair of the House Administration Committee, uh, told members uh, recently that you know people attending the opening day ceremony are going to have to wear masks. They're going to be asked to take COVID tests. It's not going to be required. Um, and then obviously access to the house floor is going to be limited. Um, and then earlier this week, we had Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick uh, announce that all senators attending the opening day ceremony will be tested for the virus. Um, his memo that was uh, released did not uh, include any mention of whether masks are going to be required. Um, you know, so choose to read into that uh, however you will. Um, and then, you know, just uh, very, very similar protocols from there on out as uh, when you compare it to the House. You know, media and public access will be limited. Ceremony is going to be much shorter. Um, there's also going to be a pool of four media members allowed on the second floor gallery. Um, once we kind of like move beyond on opening day, uh, I think we'll get a better picture of protocols specific to each chamber when the House and Senate take as Senate take up their rules. Um, I'm expecting, you know, both of those debates to happen sometime next week after opening day. And I imagine we will have the inevitable debates over whether to require masks or testing or all of those other things. Um, last note here, and I think I've been mentioning this on every other Tribcast that I've been on recently, it's, you know, uh, when the chambers take up their, their rules debates, we're still going to have members have jurisdiction over what happens with their own offices, right? Um, you're going to have members like, uh, I think S Senator Bob Hall is already on the record saying that his office isn't going to require masks um, if you would like to go in and, and visit him. And then, you know, on the other end, um, you have, you know, a number of House Democrats are already on record uh, saying that, you know, that their office is just going to be closed for visitation purposes and that they're, you know, happy to meet with folks virtually. Um, so, yeah, I think that's, that's pretty much where we uh, stand now. Um, I'm, you know... I don't know. A lot is going to happen over the next week or so. It'll be exciting. I'm excited. As, as those offices get in line, I'm, I'm curious to see, and I don't know that anything's going to happen, but I've heard, as I'm sure you guys have heard from some staffers who are kind of concerned about, well, I have to go to work. I work for a state rep or for a state senator, and mine may or may not require masks. The one next door may or may not require masks. I, I would like to know what provisions are here for my safety. And, you know, there are a lot of questions like that that are still hanging. The other thing that I think is sort of interesting is both the House and the Senate's plans for the session or announced plans for the session are kind of focused on the first day in the first week and not on the other 19 weeks of this that, that are that are rolling ahead. I'm curious to see um, as, they, as they actually get in there and, and start experiencing this, how the rules change. It sounds to me like, at least for now, a lot of uh, the, the health protocols, I'm, I'm hearing a lot of may and not a lot of musts, uh, not a lot of requirements. One of the options uh, that, that I believe we learned about recently is for members to get sort of a package of, of tests sent to their office. Is that for staff, for visitors? How is that going to work? 
Yeah. So uh, at least on the House side, you know, Charlie Guerin, uh, again, House admin chair, put out a memo uh, or, or sent members a memo, I should, a memo earlier this week, I should say. Um, just again, you know, no requirements, can't tell you how to run, run, uh, run your offices, but, you know, here are the guidelines that we're recommending here, are suggested protocols that we think should be in place. And um, one of the, the, the points of information in, in this thing that he sent to members was that offices can request to have a box of COVID tests delivered to their office via the Texas Department of Emergency Management. Um, and so basically what that looks like is if, if you're an office that wants to opt into this, you have to identify a staff member to serve as a test coordinator for the office. Um, and that's basically serving as, you know, the middleman between TDEM and, and, that, and that lawmaker to oversee the testing protocols. Um, and then from there on out, you know, you create an account online and, and you're able uh, to have access to those uh, rapid tests. So um, interesting. And then, you know, of course, you have uh, capital, capital wide, you know, the State Preservation Board opened the capital back up earlier this week. And there's also a, a test or an option to get uh, a rapid test on the north side of the building. Uh, should you so choose, but again, that's not required. So options, not requirements. What happens if someone does test positive? Like if I, you know, am a member getting a quick test on the north side of the Capitol, or if I'm a staffer getting tested in the, you know, my boss's office, I, is there some kind of protocol for, for what happens when you do get the inevitable positives as, as we know we will at this point? You know, uh, been trying to figure that out myself uh, <laughs> this week. Um, so far, I have seen nothing in writing uh, that's been released publicly that really puts it, uh, kind of lays out what the protocol is should you decide to go take a, a, a test at, you know, the north side of the Capitol and it come, comes back positive. Um, I think um, members are, members and staff are asking some of those same questions and um, I don't know, maybe we'll, we'll uh, that'll clear up here bet uh, between now and Tuesday. But as of now, there really is no uh, clear-cut answer on that. As of now, there's nothing in writing that prevents me from testing positive and then walking right into the Capitol with that result. Right. And if there is something in writing, I have not seen it. Um, but I know that it's, it's a question on, on people's minds just because it's not anything that's, that's really been, been relayed to the public yet. And it and might be is, that if you test positive at the Capitol that they divert you. But if you test positive somewhere else and then go to the Capitol, they don't know. And they're not requiring you to be tested. Right. Right. I mean, so Char go ahead. Charlie Guerin said at one point in this that part of the plan is for an outbreak. You know, that part of what the House is thinking about is, you know, as you talk about this, you've got these people from all over the state coming in and out. You've got, you know, and that's just the members. And then you've got presumably some public coming in and out you're going to have some cases and you're going to have some kind of outbreak, whether that's just, you know, this particular house office or Senate office or that committee or, you know, whatever form that takes, that they're going to have, there's going to be an episode sometime in the next, in the 20 weeks of the legislative session. Well, yeah. I mean, the, you know, the week of Christmas, actually, I remember talking to house members for a story that Patrick Svitek and I wrote and, you know, as of then, there still was no clear-cut plan for how to track cases at the Capitol or if there was even going to be a tracking system in the first place. Um, so I, I think, you know, people are, are still either working through that or having discussions about how best to track that or, you know, maybe it's it's something that they've deemed is, is not going to be able, you know, is, is untrackable. I don't know. 
Well, lots more to come. I think just to end this with a morbid note, I think it was in the state of New Hampshire that the Speaker of the House died of COVID after exposure at some kind of work-related indoor event. So we know that this is a serious issue and we'll, we'll continue to ask these questions. If someone does have this information in writing, please send it to Cassie. We are very interested. Um, Thank you. Our, our, our last topic here, we've talked a lot about what it may look like in the Capitol. Um, what are we going to be talking about uh, in this new session? You know, we know we have uh, what's likely to be a really difficult budget year. We're talking a lot about um, COVID protocols. What are you expecting to be the big topics? Um, you know, I think the, the two big things, or actually the three big things, is budget redistricting and responding to the pandemic. There have been some at the legislature, uh, you know, making it clear since March that they would like to have a say in how the state responds to the to the pandemic. Um, and, you know, obviously up until this point, it's been mainly the governor and then other state agencies kind of leading the charge on that. So um, I think those are going to be the three biggest things. Of course, you know, there's a question about how far um, some of, you know, these party priorities that we've been talking about, a ban on taxpayer-funded lobbying, um, some of the more bipartisan issues like, you know, expanding rural broadband access in the state, um, how, how big of a play those types of things get if, if lawmakers end up having enough time to take those types of things up. Um, and then, you know, other things like finishing work that, that they knew that they're going to have to come back and tackle uh, this session from 2019, such as the school finance reform bill, making tweaks to that. Um, finding, you know, revenue streams to continue funding what they uh, put into the school finance and property tax systems. Ross, what's your money on? As uh, you know, they're going to start with the budget. Rates. And a lot, of this, a lot of this will get folded into the budget. Monday morning, uh, Glenn Hager, the state controller, will come out and say, here is my biennial revenue estimate. This is his forecast of how much money the state will have coming in through its various taxes and fees and, and things during the two years that starts on September 1st. He's also going to have a number for the current budget that runs through August to say, here's how far short we are of what we thought we would have. Um, early in the year, he said we were going to be $4.6 billion short. He said in November that it'll be, that we'll be short, but it'll be something less than that. Um, so first thing we do is we get that financial news and then we go into the session the next day. The budget's the thing that they, you know, like they always say, that's the only bill they have to pass. A lot of the other stuff that you're talking about that Cassie brought up can be included in a budget. You know, if the state wants to spend some money on broadband, some things like that, that's a that's a fiscal kind of responsibility. There are a lot of members for various reasons who want to put a leash on the governor and, you know, the emergency orders that Greg Abbott has used to control everything from which bars are open to how many people can gather in a crowd since, you know, March 13th, when this really um, kind of began in, in, in full in Texas. And they think he should have called, some of them think he should have called the legislature back in, that he exceeded his powers, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that'll get litigated in legislation here. Um, you know, there's, uh, that's led some new attention to an old move to, you know, instead of having a session every two years, maybe we ought to have a session every year so the legislature comes back more often so that this stuff doesn't depend on a governor. I don't know where that'll go, but I do expect to have a big conversation about it. And then the other thing that they have to do this year, if not necessarily this legislative session, is redistricting. And, 
you know, right now we're waiting to see when the census is going to deliver the numbers that all the new maps will be based on. If that happens, you know, with reasonable time left in the legislative session, then they have to act then. If it doesn't, then we could be here through the summer. Well, lots more to come. And the next time we uh, convene for TribCast, it will have kicked off. How exciting is that? Um, Thanks to Spoon for our theme music and thanks to our sponsors this week, the Central Texas Regional Mobility Authority, Circle, Lone Star College, and Raise Your Hand, Texas. On behalf of Abby, Ross, Cassie, and our producer, Todd, this is Emma. Thanks for listening.